Hey guys, welcome back to pre-production. Thank you so much for listening once again. I'm very excited for today's guest. He is a writer of not just TV and film, but also comics. He's written such comics as Black Panther, Batman, Killmonger, Spider-Man, and much more. He's also been a writer on television shows like Ash vs. the Evil Dead and Titans. I'm so excited to be talking to Brian Edward Hill today. Thank you so much, man, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. I've been a, you know, huge fan of your stuff for a long time, so I'm kind of giddy about this. This is, <laughs> this, is, well, this is awesome. Well, I'm a fan of your work too, man. I mean, you're kind of prolific. This is unique because all the guests I've talked to so far have kind of just stayed in one lane, film or TV, and you've, you've right. kind of spread yourself over so many different kinds of art forms, which is really impressive. Where did your love of art in general begin? Well, that's a that's a really great question. Yeah, I, I am kind of like a butterfly, you know, going from flower to flower, right? Like that sort of deal. When I was young, I just had a, a love of movies. I didn't have a A24 style difficult childhood, but my father died when I was about seven years old. And it was hard to reconcile all of that. And that's what bonded me to comics because I just found Batman to be a solace, right? Like Batman's parents died, my dad died. It just kind of bonded me there. And stories became a real place for me to go. Being an only child growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, I'm a weird kid, right? Like we're all weird kids, basically. And my mother has a real love of movies, not like in a critical way, but she's just one of those people that just loves movies and uh, she would you know park me in front of the big tv and you know we would just watch films and it was a it was a wonderful kind of window into places right like a, kind of a way to get out of like my my day-to-day -day. but i never really considered storytelling as a profession when i was younger i wanted to be an fbi agent no shit <laughs> yeah, wow. I, I read you know because i was a library kid wasn't a lot of money growing up so Spent a lot of time in the library checking out books, but also checking out soundtracks and listening to them on the old Fisher-Price record player and the whole thing. And one of the books <laughs> I read was uh, Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. And I was fascinated with Will Graham. I wanted to be the guy that caught serial killers. You know, I, how old were you at this time about? Like seven, eight, nine? Uh, 11, 12. Okay. You know, I was always kind of a voracious reader. Now that's really mature reading for that age. It's impressive. Well, Manhunter was on NBC when I was a kid, and I watched it and was like, I don't know what this is. You know, when you watch Manhunter and you're a kid, it's like experiencing a psychological break. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like you just, you don't know how to process that. And I had the same experience with Psycho. I don't know why my mom showed me Psycho when I was like five, but I was like, I was like, it was arrested by, like I was pinned against the couch by that. I mean, I loved the experience, but like I, I had... I could not comprehend it, you know, like I didn't under, like on an emotional level, it was so crazy. These are the things that happen when you put a television in a child's bedroom. They end up watching Manhunter way too early, but I was really fascinated with, and that's why I chased down Red Dragon, you know, I wanted to know things. So I wanted to go to Quantico and I was pretty serious about it for a while. And then my mother sat me down when I was like 16 and she was like, Brian, I don't care what you do. Just do something where you don't have a gun. I had an English teacher, Carolyn Thomas, who was a really good friend to me. And she encouraged my writing. And I, I got really into, you know, thinking about filmmaking as as a pathway. I have such fond memories of all those firsts. You know, it's like the first time you watch The Godfather, the first time you watch Apocalypse Now, the first time you engage with a Sidney Lumet film when you're so young, but you're like, I'm ready for Serpico now. Yeah. You know, like I can, 
do this. And I was just really into that. So I targeted NYU and USC because those were the places I'd heard of. I did an incredibly stupid thing, Chris. In my hubris, I only applied to USC and NYU. Oof. Assuming that like, well, I'll split the hair, I'll get in the one. I got the rejection letter from USC first. But the way my stupid brain worked, I was like, oh, that means I got into NYU. And I did get into NYU. And only later did I realize I dodged a whole like bullet by, you know, narrowing it down to that. But yeah, so I went to NYU to be a writer director. Uh, I was really poor. So it was difficult to be there. It's so expensive. And the, the fiscal realities of filmmaking hit me. And this is back when it was all celluloid, Steenbeck's thousand dollars a minute. Like I just didn't have the money to make student films. And in my senior year, kids had like 60 grand that their parents could give them to make a student film. I mean, they could hire 35 millimeter package with an AC to shoot their their student film. And I just knew like, well, I'm outclassed here. I can't do that. So I just wrote a lot. And the initial idea was to be a bit like John Sales. I wanted to write commercial films for them. For those listening, I'm putting them in quotes. And then I would make personal films for me, underlining me, right? That was the plan. So I wrote a bunch of terrible screenplays. I knew that it wasn't like med school or, or law school where I was going to graduate and I would just apply to be a writer-director, right? I knew that. And to be frank, I didn't know if my race as a Black creator was going to be a hindrance. It wasn't like it is now where there are so many creators of, of different stripes. It sort of felt like you had Spike and then you had John... And that was kind of it. So I felt if I could write a really good action thriller or sci-fi movie, then I could sell that as product rather than having to sell myself. And that was my target. And I just kind of kept doing all that and eventually sold a script to Universal. And that brought me out to Los Angeles and I kept it going. And they call it golden handcuffs out here. You know, you're sort of faced with these two choices. I could sit in an air-conditioned room in my pajamas and I could write the screenplay for somebody. Or I could do all of the haul and hustle of an independent film with no real guarantee I would get a result out of it. And I just kind of stuck with the writing because that's where the momentum was. You know, it's, it's, you grow up poor, you never stop thinking about it. I never had any money either. I think it's half the reason why YouTube was such a big distraction for me from actual filmmaking because I was suddenly making money doing something. Right. You know, and I was like, well, shit, if this is actually paying the bills, I should probably find a way to keep doing this because I don't know if I'll make money doing what I really want to do. Yeah. I mean, that's a real thing, you know, like the because you you live in a state of instability for so long. You know, I mean, I, I made it sound easy, but it wasn't. I'm talking years of terrible temp jobs, couch surfing, ramen noodle meals, watching my friends who took traditional pathways get homes have kids, do all of these things. And and I was like taking the bus to a terrible third shift job trying to write a screenplay on a computer that I rented from Rent-A-Center for a week because I just needed a week to type into Microsoft Word and formatting <laughs> my script in Microsoft Word because I couldn't afford Final Draft because space, I- Space, 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 yeah. space. Like I got very good at, at early nineties macros, you know? And so like, yeah, it was really, really difficult to do. So once I started getting a foothold into a career, it seemed incumbent upon me to you know remain with that relative stability. And only now recently 
am I really getting back into the idea of filmmaking again? Because I've worked for a while, worked on two television shows, written some major screenplays, working on major screenplays right now. So now I'm getting back into it. But there was a long pause for me in filmmaking. It's weird. It's like a cat in a hot tin roof. You know, Brick, uh, played by Paul Newman, talking to Maggie the Cat, and he says, like, you know, I drink until I hear the click. Well, for me, it was, I feel unstable until I hear the click. And I think somewhere around maybe second season of Titans, I, I heard the click. You know, people started relating to me differently. Yeah. Instead of the first reaction to your ambition being doubt and suspicion, there was a sense of inevitability. People were, weren't advising me not to do something. They were saying, make sure it's the right opportunity for this and that. And that reinforcement kind of led me to that. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I, you know, how I got into wanting to be creative. You mentioned that movies were an escape for you. I think a lot of people listening, especially me, can relate to that because it's sort of like a window to another world. And when I was young, I didn't really think of them as being made by people. There was just kind of this magical mm -hmm. screen that showed me things and it was really cool. And I, I watch my kids now and they sort of have that same expression when they look at the TV. It's like this, what is this, this world I'm looking into? What was the moment for you or was there a moment for you where you began to like look at the credits and look at the job titles and realize that people came together and made these and maybe you could be a part of that too. Well, I think it had a lot to do with the behind the scenes content I would see. So when I was a kid, there was a show on Nickelodeon that was called Lights, Camera, Action. It was hosted by Leonard Nimoy. And it was all about the making of films. And that's when I first became aware of the people behind the stuff. It was buying used copies of Starlog from the library. It was going to <laughs> garage sales and anything that had a movie on the cover that I loved or liked even, you know, I was just picking it up. I have strong memories of going to the library and buying the movie companion magazine to Blade Runner. So when I picked it up, it was probably 86, 87. But, you know, you see words like Sid Mead, Jordan Cronenweth, yeah. Ridley Scott. So it was it was really being fascinated with that. And, you know, like Star Wars, like, who is Dennis Murat? Ben Burt. Oh, wait a minute. There's a guy who made R2 sound like R2. That's crazy. So I was really into all of the kind of the micro department stuff. And then it was films that led me to directors, which led me into a lot of that too, right? Like I, I didn't know who directed what. I just knew that like certain movies just felt different. Alien just didn't feel like other things. You know, there was just something special about that. And you're like, well, why, who did this? Or Aliens or The Terminator. I saw Raw Deal. I saw Commando. <laughs> this is diff. Why is this so diff? It's very different from Raw Deal. Right? You know, but like, but, but that would be part of like the Schwarzenegger double feature. Or, sure. You know, KTLR, right? It'd be Raw Deal and The Terminator. Yeah, I just saw, I saw a double feature on, I forget if it was AMC or something. It was Predator and then it was the Cocainum one. <laughs> it's yeah. like where I was like, yeah, one of these stands out. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, like you just, you just know that like, okay, these films are just built differently you know you get absorbed by them in a different way and i didn't really understand the, the vicissitudes of cinematography and editing and the rest of it when a movie started and it had the production company logo that was a lightning bolt 
it was going to look really cool and wet. You know? <laughs> I, I liked the wet movies, Chris. I was like, is, is, this, a, is this a wet movie? I can I, 100% understand. The first time I ever noticed what, what they call in the industry a wet down, I was watching Lethal Weapon and Mel Gibson's running on the streets holding that giant gun chasing Gary Busey. And I noticed that all of the, the car headlights were were reflecting off of the of the concrete and it looked incredible. They had sprayed down the streets called a wet down. You spray things with water sometimes before shooting and it looks amazing. We did it we got it accidentally on my film. We had this terrible day where it rained and then it stopped right before we started and and it looks great for the scene. But yeah, no, wet movies. Yeah, like, them out. know anything. Like, you know, like it's you know, it's like a, a podcast I listen to who's always talking about the sheen. Like this had brown mm-hmm. sheen and well, I like the wet. Yeah, if your movie was wet, I was gonna watch it. Right? It's like the scene in Alien when there's a, there's a Brett with with Jonesy, is you know, before he mm-hmm. dies, before he dies, that whole area is just dripping in water, you know, and it's <laughs> like it falls on his face and everything before the alien comes and gets him. Like the Chiascuru, the diffusion, all that. I just knew that there were like certain aesthetics that I really dug, and then I started digging into why do these things look like this. Also, the as in high school. HBO used to do these 30-minute making of mini docs of movies that they were going to broadcast. You'd watch the Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it was really fascinating because you'd see like Gary Oldman in jeans and a t-shirt and Winona Ryder in in a sweatshirt and they were like working the scene, kind of like a high school play and you're like, whoa, and creature features and like Rick Baker, you know, American Werewolf in London, like how did that come together and all so the thing, you know, like, whoa, like, who's who's doing all the rock bottom? Like, oh, wait a minute. The thing scares the hell out of me. So does RoboCop. Why? Oh, this guy that just goes from movie <laughs> to movie terrorizing us with his nightmares. Like, <laughs> so the Tom Savini, like, these are all just, like, badass heroes to me. And that's, yeah, that's what led me into thinking about, like, the process kind of behind the process. That's great. You kind of cued a memory for me because I remember watching one of my Star Wars tapes had an intro from Leonard Moulton, and mm. and he was talking about how one of the releases was going to have something called From Star Wars to Jedi, which was this epic making of the trilogy. And I had that, and I would watch it over and over and over. You kind of cued these childhood memories of seeing Tony Daniels getting into C-3PO and oh my god, there really is a guy under there. Or Chewbacca and taking his mask off and and and, see, and finally realizing it wasn't actually James Earl Jones inside Darth Vader's suit. And I started to pay attention to those types of things and I think that that really kind of opened my mind to the fact that they were things, they were creations. My version of Scorsese, you know, in the local Little Italy theater and watching those movies or Spielberg running around with the Super 8 camera was the the VHS rewatches, the the SLP recorded tape that had three movies on it that you'd get from HBO or, you know, the mom and pop video store that would have that one movie you wanted to see that no one else did. I saw True Romance when I was in high school and was like, this movie was really cool. And then I was reading some kind of entertainment weekly or I don't know what premiere, like one of those, whatever. And there was something in there about A Better Tomorrow 2 was the movie playing on the television. You mean like that wasn't, they didn't make that for the movie? I mean, there's a whole movie of that? You know, then I was like, well, I got to see that, right? And then you got to go like Blockbuster isn't going to have that. So then there was this one place Bijou movies I could walk to and they had the tape. They had the Better Tomorrow 2 tape. But 
there was only one. So you had to put your name in the spiral notebook and they would call you in two months and they'd be like, Brian, the tape is here. And I'm like, I'm coming to get the tape. And then you <laughs> and then you like call like your film nerd friends and be like, yo, Ben, I got the tape, man. We got the tape. And then you watch it, and you're watching this crazy John Woo movie, and you're like, I think these people are really getting shot. This is insane. Like, what are they doing? Are they taking, like, capital prisoners and just giving them, like, a chance to survive, and then they shoot it? Like, this is wild, right? Yeah, um, it's like the first time I saw Hard Boiled. I was, it just, there was something about it that was so different from, right. from like, American action movies at the time. Yeah, and, you know, now we have instant access to virtually everything, which is really good to be able to, oh, you know, I haven't seen Fish Tank. I'm going to go stream Fish Tank now. But back then, there was obviously less access. But when you rented a tape, Chris, you had to watch the tape. Like, yeah, it, didn't, you had to watch. it didn't matter how bad it was, right? Like, you were just, you going to finish yeah. the tape. Like, I'm going to finish this Don the Dragon Wilson movie <laughs> because I rented it. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, many, many weekends were spent at Hollywood Video and Blockbuster, and there was some local places like Roadrunner Video and yeah. some some, Ak- some Akron, Ohio places. But I have very fond memories of all those things, and I would also go to the Akron Library quite a bit. And that was different because the Akron Library didn't have, like, the, the cover art in front of the, the tapes like Blockbuster would. You could, mm-hmm. you could walk through and see the cover art. Akron Library was just these these clamshell cases that were blank. And so you had to just read the title and think, okay, that sounds interesting. What's that? Read the back. Oh yeah, that's interesting. So I would get a lot of those types of things too and and really just peruse through that. But yeah, the idea of becoming aware that something was out or would be out soon, reserving it, pre-ordering it, putting your name on some sort of wait list and then just hoping that it shows up. I did that quite a bit with anime because in like the late 90s, early 2000s, anime was hardly... As it was no, I mean, a fraction of what it, the availability of today, I would be like calling my local comic store and he knew me. I was like the weird 12, 13 year old kid who would just like call him and ask him when the newest tapes were going to be in. I think the scarcity of access, it did really build a love, right? Because you work so hard to see it. And so when you, when you rented it, you'd watch it, then you'd watch it again, and then you would talk to your homies about it. And, it, you know, it just really built like a community around it. I mean, it's such a common denominator grammar movies. So many times in my life, I've been in situations where people had nothing in common with them, and we just started talking about films and what films do they love? And, oh, that's really cool. I like that movie too. No, no, no. I like Rocky Four more than Rocky Three because of this, you know, and, and you get into it. And, and, and I think that kind of global community of cinema, it helped kind of get me out of my shell. Yeah, and help me connect with other people totally uh, in, in, in a real way. So that that was a big part of it too. So you mentioned that you were starting to get a little bit of opportunities, but there was sort of a discrepancy between like I'm going to try to write a studio movie and really get paid, or I'm going to kind of try to bust my ass over something that might just be like an indie spec. And there's no guarantee that anything will get made, but I feel passionate about it and it's important to me. But there's no guarantees. I never really thought of writing as an actual job that I could have. It was just something mm-hmm. I kind of did for fun. And mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden I realized that people got paid doing it and I thought, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll try to write some professionally. But in your case, comics and and film, television, where did this really become like a viable option for you? I never really considered myself a writer by choice. It was always necessity. I I wanted to make films. And I had no idea where you got a screenplay. 
You know, I knew I couldn't buy one. And a lot of the films that I loved were by people who were writer directors, you know, like that's what I knew. Like Lucas wrote the novel to Star Wars, wrote the screenplay for Star Wars, and then he directed it. James Cameron wrote and directed The Terminator. You know, I know Ridley didn't write Blade Runner, but you know, you watch any behind the scenes on Blade Runner, you know, remember when there was that like 25th anniversary edition VHS and it had all the behind the scenes stuff. I mean, he sounded like he was the writer, you know, he'd like you, you know, you'd watch it. Yeah, so, you know, when Decker got so his both replicant, right? And so <laughs> it put the light head and moved that, and the scene goes like this, and it's good. And you're like, okay, well, that's, I, I got it. This is a fantastic Ridley Scott. It's, it's one of my most useless skills. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It seemed to me that. You know, Coppola, right and right. It seemed to me like the guys who were doing, guys and, and, and girls, I was a big Catherine Bigelow fan too growing up. You know, I was big into uh, Near Dark, Strange Days and the rest of it. it. It seemed like you had to be able to write a script. I always saw myself as a person who was working on writing things that they would make and then maybe I could write something that I would sell, but I wasn't a writer, I wasn't a writer, I wasn't a writer. Like writers for me were like Arthur Miller and Ernest Hemingway and I just wasn't. I wasn't some guy with khaki pants and a white button down going through cigarettes at a typewriter like that. That well, wasn't me. I just wanted to kind of put it down on paper so I could, I could make it. But, you know, over time, you know, you do more projects and you take these meetings and, and you go through these processes and you start to meet other writers who feel kind of like you are. And, and, and then, like a lot of times in life, Chris, you start to self-identify because other people start to identify you as a thing. And you're like, oh, you're talking to me as if I am. Yeah. Well, I guess I will pretend to be. Mm -hmm. And then I had more experience as a writer than I did as a filmmaker. So then filmmaking seemed like, well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And so when I was working on Titans, what it really was, was all the time you spend on set producing television. It was working with the different departments. And that's when all that old Leonard Nimoy lights, camera, action stuff started to wake up again. When you're just getting nerdy around props or visual effects or sound design, or you're talking to Boris was our DP for a lot of the series, and you're talking to him about lenses, and then he's like, you're, like, knowledgeable about this stuff. Like, you, you know, Boris would always tell me, you know, Brian, you should probably just make a film. You're, you're very good. You should be a director and, and make make a film, you know. <laughs> and so I was like, maybe, you know? And then you're... And, and then you had the other other element. We don't initially think of when we're kind of moving into the this idea of being a, a filmmaker, writer, filmmaker, working with actors. And on on Titans, I had to work closely with the cast because sometimes I'm the only person from LA. We shot in Toronto. I'm the only person from LA that's up there. And when the cast has questions, they ask me. And you're like, okay, I'm talking to this professional actor who's a celebrity and I guess I'm the guy in the black and white photograph with the with the bet script. Yeah. You know, talking to the actor about what the scene is about. Do that director pose. Yeah, do that director pose, right? And so you're like, and, and we reached like an understanding of what the scene was, right? I'm like, oh, okay. And I think those experiences kind of woke it back up because a lot of it is like the karate kid. You know, you think you're just sanding a floor and, and washing a car and painting a fence, and then people start throwing kicks and punches at you, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I think I know karate. Yeah. You know, and so it kind of felt like that's a great example, too. I mean, like I've talked to a few people who feel similarly, as do I, that I think the best writer directors and or, or any really profession in this industry, they never really consider themselves the thing until somebody else kind of like says, hey, you're really good at that. Or they walk up to you and say, 
would you like to come on a podcast and talk about your experience with writing? And, oh, shit, I, yeah, okay. And I think that that is also super healthy, though, because the folks who are very arrogant about it, like, I'm a filmmaker, they usually make really bad movies because they're not their number one critic. You know, they don't think of themselves in that way where they want to second guess their choices and their ideas. They're just like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fucking good at this. And the best people I talk to who are good at this kind of thing, including yourself, you need other people to kind of tell you, you know what, you, you actually are really good at this. You need your DP yeah, from Titans to look at you and say you should direct a film. A sincere statement of gratitude from an actor that was stuck in the scene and talked to you and was able to get back to the text of the scene and find their way through it. Those moments help. And when you start to have those moments, and in our creative sense, and then also in a business sense, I was lucky in a way because I didn't move out to LA until I had already sold something. So I never really had the experience of I'm driving past a studio that I could never get into. It was always like, oh, well, I have a meeting over there because I sold a thing. So a lot of people move out to LA early and it's a big closed city because I spent so much, I spent 10 years in New York after St. Louis kind of going back and forth. And I did some meetings going back and forth in LA as well. By the time I hit LA, I had been on multiple studio lots when I lived here. My first trip to LA, I had, you know, the general meetings at Paramount and whatever, whatever, right? So I got those professional experiences early. I was walking through Universal to a meeting on that first script I sold and you pass by the tourist truck. And they're looking at you wondering if you're you're like, oh, you're somebody we should take a photograph of or something, you know? And so, <laughs> or like just weird little Hollywood moments where you're in a waiting room waiting to take a general with a producer who's not going to hire you, but you don't know that and you're really excited. And Eric Bana walks in because he's got a meeting and he just talks to you like you're just like, you know, oh, you're here. Hey, man, like Chopper. Oh, thanks, mate. You know, and you're like, okay, that happened. Meeting Brad Pitt on crutches because he heard himself making Troy. I was going to say, if this is like the early 2000s, mid-2000s, we're talking yeah. we're talking Hulk, Eric Banner, Troy, Brad Pitt. We're talking Hulk, Eric Banner, we're talking Troy, Brad Pitt. Yeah. And, you know, and I had a meeting with, I forgot the name of the producer, but they didn't hire me, so I don't feel bad about it. And Brad was there, like, on crutches, right? And you're just like, that's Brad Pitt. And he's just like, hey, man, you know, what's going surreal. on? And then, surreal. Surreal. Right, it's totally surreal. And and because, you know, they don't know who you are. Like, you're, you're a writer or you're somebody. You're part of the business. And those moments are really affirming. And you might be, like, squealing inside, but it helps to kind of build that sense of self and identity. So I tell people all the time, for anyone listening to this that feels a million miles away from where you want to go, I certainly felt that, too. And for me, it was always the work, ultimately. Just kind of saying, well... I don't know if I'm a writer, but I know I'm writing this. I don't know if I'm a filmmaker, but I know I'm shooting this. And if we can separate our identity from this kind of permanent definition, waiting for a crown and get that out of our heads and just say, well, identity is action. So if you're writing, you're a writer. If you're filming, you're a filmmaker. Now, there are scales of, of quality and skill, sure. But if you're on the scale anywhere by acting, then you can always raise yourself on that skill with practice. And so I tell people all the time, if you're writing a novel, you're a writer. If the novel is trash, make it better. So you're a bad writer, but that's still a writer. And you can make yourself a better writer. You know, if you're making a bad film, that's a bad film. But you're still a filmmaker and you can make a, a better one. And, and that eased me a little bit. So for people listening to this, you know, just if you're doing a thing, you're the thing. That's gold, what you just said. Like, that is some motivational speaker, like, 
top 10 TED talk. That's some, that's some true gold right there. Like that's, well, that's some Robert McKee. St- like that's, that's like, I, I just, li- I just listened to like three Robert McKee audiobooks. Oh, that's the most inspiring thing I've heard. Keep <laughs> saying, Chris, like you have to, you, you know, you, you need sanity in this and, and, and you need perspective and you got to put arrogance at bay, but at the same time, you got to give yourself permission to be. So you're there, you're in LA, you're meeting Eric Bana. You're, you're noticing. You're, yeah, yeah. You know, we're fast friends. You know, like, <laughs> you're seeing Brad Pitt while he's there. Uh, Brad and I hang out all the time. While he's filming Troy. and oh, uh, me 20 bucks, that guy. That guy. And he hands you a script and says, take it. It's yours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he asked me what's in the box a lot. Perfect. So when did you kind of experience, you, you mentioned you had sold something. What was it like to experience that first bit of success did it come with some validation was it scary where were you at this is when i was writing constantly i was probably writing five six features a year i just started with a a manager who was building up his own company at the same time and i was just throwing work at the system and the script i wrote quick little funny story i was getting frustrated chris i i thought i was writing these like elevated character driven genre experiences and I would keep getting like, it's kind of interesting, but not for us. Or, you know, we don't really know the rest of it. And I was getting demoralized. But attrition is a natural state for me. So I was still digging in my heels and, and doing that. But I was feeling like I don't even know what I'm doing. And then I wrote what I thought was this, like, uh, it was probably not very good. But I thought it was like this beautiful exploration of emotional consequence wrapped around this idea of alien abduction. Putting a lot into it. And I, and I, and I sent it over to my reps at the time. And they were like, no, this is like meandering and, and we don't get what this is. It's not really a studio. This needs to be commercial. It needs to be commercial. I was so angry that I didn't know what to do. And, and I think I popped in a bunch of DVDs, you know, to kind of, you know, movies help me love movies again. And reps often don't help me love movies again. And so I was watching The Omen and behind the scenes and, and the, the writer of it was talking about how he wrote The Omen because he wanted to write the most terrible screenplay he could, like the dumbest thing he could because he was at a point in his life when he was like, I don't get this business and I'm going to write the most ridiculous thing. He's like, uh, the Antichrist. I'm writing a movie about the Antichrist and I want to be in the moment. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to write the dumbest thing I can come up with. Like, what if Jack Bauer's wife was abducted by aliens and he went to go get her? Oh, and <laughs> I, I, I called the movie Gone and I was, I was reading a lot of Tony Gilroy at the time. So there was a whole lot of white on the page and I was italicizing stuff and making it move fast and doing all the Gilroy things. It was a script that has a really good first act, a pretty decent second act, and the third act's a mess because I couldn't land that plane. I had no idea how my action hero character was going to slap box his way through aliens, right? I had no idea. <laughs> but I had I had a good two acts. And so I wrote that movie in like a fugue state. I probably wrote that movie in probably the span of maybe 45 hours. Jesus oh, just, Christ! Just, just slapping it, just slapping the keys. Wow! And, and but you know, I'd been writing and writing a lot, and, and sure, you know, I had scenes I never used, and characters I never used, and dialogue that was in the back of my mind. Like it wasn't like I was starting from scratch. Like once you're in the in the flow of it, you've yeah. got ton, you've got you've got ten thousand times more stuff than what you've ever put in the page. And so I was in my mother's basement in St. Louis, Missouri, and just writing out of pure Darth Maul Sith fury. And I wrote this script <laughs> and I, I sent it as like a hate letter to my reps. And I was like, you want commercial? Well, read 
this, you know? And I was like, <laughs> and they read it and they really liked it, sent it to Universal, Universal bought it. So it was still a mess. They recognized it was a mess, but they liked the concept and they, you know, and they wanted to work with it. Did a couple of drafts of it. I'm not sure it's going anywhere now. People are still like kind of fond of some elements of it. You know, I still get compliments on it. 45 hour fugue state hate letter script. Mm, kind of, <laughs> kind of, you know? Well, because another one of my things that I, that I tell people a lot is as a creator, you don't have the luxury to not use what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. Instead of compartmentalizing your feelings, activate them and put them into something. If you're feeling hopeless, write a movie about hopelessness, you know, maybe overcoming it or falling to it. If you want to be like Fincher 90s, then no one wins. If you want to be Spielberg 80s, then they find a way through. doesn't matter, but use it. Your heart gets broken, use it. Whatever it is, don't just feel a thing and then say like, I got to put this feeling away and I got to write this movie. No, no, no. Write about the thing you're feeling. Like, absolutely that integrated. And so I, I felt like I was up against an impossible scenario where no one really believed in, in my ability to do this, but I thought I had a method. And so I wrote a movie that was full of that energy. And I think despite the broken structure of it, you know, and despite some of the failings of it, I genuinely think that the honest articulation of those emotions gave that script something. And so how'd I feel when the, when I, when I sold it, it was affirming for sure. It justified a lot of hard time, but it also opened up a whole set of new fears. Okay, what's the next step? Is this going to happen again? I don't know. I don't, you know, is is my entire career resting on the opinion of this guy I'm talking to in this office? If you sell a screenplay, that's great. Will I sell another one? Will it take five years? Will it take six years? It's such a stressful thing, but that's why, I mean, it's one of the biggest reasons I wanted you to come on because like, I, I know so much of your journey is to me genuinely inspiring. And I think it will be for other people too, because of how much of yourself you put into your work and how much you just desperately wanted to make stuff and just kept forging along, even though you were getting resistance initially. I'm terrified every time I start a creative endeavor. The The principal emotion is fear. And the way I, I deal with that fear is to charge up what I'm doing with another emotion, to have a deep emotional connection to what I'm working on that's stronger than my fear of it not being good. Creating is a lot like being a Jedi in a way, right? Like you just have to trust that the force is there. You know, you, you got to trust that when you reach out your hand, that lightsaber is going to snap into it. And it might not feel like it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to happen. You got to let it go. And so I do invest a lot emotionally into my work. You know, I change usually a little bit because of everything that I write. You know, I'm mm -hmm. not the same person at the end that I was at the beginning. It becomes that. And that helps me kind of get through that imposter syndrome that I still have. Every time I've ever written something that felt like it was part of me or it was like an experience I had and I've put myself into it in some way, I always do feel as if I've gone through like the most intense therapy session afterwards. I feel genuinely better about it. It can be stressful and it can be terrifying to put something that's very real to you into words. And it can also be dangerous because one of the biggest, I think, pitfalls of, of any writing is when you think, well, I've experienced this, it's important to me, so other people, it'll be important to other people too. And that's not always the case. You have to make it interesting for audiences, but at the end of the day, I think that's one of the most important things is finding a way to put yourself or your experiences or pain or, or loss or things you've gone through into your work. So I, I totally agree. It's kind of the gift of the of the career to be able to make money with introspection and embracing that gift, I think, is a, is, is a really useful thing. And then also, you know, and this is another toolbox thing for people listening that are, you know, either in mid-journey or beginning journey or, you know, whatever it is. 
by deeply investing into it, into what you're feeling, into what you're thinking, you can lead yourself to what I call your all story. And that is a thematic statement. You know, we're talking about Robert McKee, like a thematic statement that you could probably engage multiple times in multiple ways. And I'll give you an example. If I say a theme is mankind's pursuit of technological achievement will always be his undoing if he doesn't measure his hubris. Every James Cameron movie is that. Mm -hmm. That's his story. If I say living with integrity in a world that punishes people that don't shade themselves to get along is the best truth you can experience, but it may wind up destroying you. Every Michael Mann movie is that. So by like investing into your yourself and your emotions, you can get to your all story. And then from the same thematic, you can get Manhunter, Last of the Mohicans, Heat, Collateral, Black Hat. You can look at different pockets of popular culture, different time periods, and say, well, okay, how can I tell my story in this? Because in that higher philosophical sense, Ali and Heat are the same movie. And knowing that makes you prolific. It buttresses your perspective. It helps you when you go into pitch meetings on things. If someone gives you a piece of material and wants your take on it, you're like, well, I'm going to give you my take with my story. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but I'm going to be so certain about telling the story that my certainty may be the thing that gets you interested in choosing me instead of the next you know, gal or guy. It's not just having a thematic for the project you're working on, but think, oh, what is your core thematic? I, I, I tell new writers all this because I talk to high school kids and some college kids on Zooms on occasion just kind of giving them some pointers and tips and answering their questions about, you know, being a professional storyteller. And I tell them, before you tell a story, take out a piece of paper and write 10 things you believe are true about the world. And then just keep whittling that list down until you get to the thing you believe is most true about the world. Now, take that, write that top of a piece of paper. Now give me 10 ideas that engage that theme and see how much stronger those ideas are. See how much easier it is to get to concept, to build characters, to build worlds, right? By by understanding self in a philosophical way. I think that's really important. And you can only get there if you are blisteringly honest in your work. So you can peel away your artifice and get to the thing that matters most to you as an artist. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's such a concise way of getting to the point too. You should write a screenplay book, man. I mean, I know it's probably not what you want to do, but you should well, write a book. I should, I should like write like a good movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like if you go to Robert McKee's IMDb, it's not like glowing or something, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I do. I you know, in time, one of the, one of my goals is maybe do like five, ten more years in this business, and then I do think about teaching teaching at a community college, somewhere where it doesn't cost a lot of money to go. I think you'd be phenomenal um, at it. Because, you know, I'd spend a lot of money to go to NYU, and everyone doesn't have a mother that's going to put themselves through that so their kid can get an education. And I think the fact that your social economic status can largely determine the quality of education you get decimates self social mobility in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I think about it, yeah, sometimes. But in time, I need to do some cool things so students pay attention to me. Well, people should pay attention to you right now. Do you still have an interest in directing? Well, kind of going back to what I said earlier, I have a great interest in directing the stories I want to direct. I can't say that I want to be a director. I don't know what that means. I have an, a crime thriller I'm writing that I intend to direct that I'm very interested in. 
I have a horror film that I'm working on that I would love to direct because I'm very interested in that. But I got to look at it project by project, Chris. I can't look at it like being a dentist. I'm going to open up my shop and I'm going to, you know, put in fillings. Like, that's just not how it is. So there are specific things I would like to make. Yes, I'd like to execute because I think I'd be the best at doing it. Ever since I was finally able to get a film off the ground, there's been more interest in sending me things from people. Would you like, would you, do you have an interest in this story? Do you have an interest in this story? And I never do. I'm sure that at some point that'll happen, maybe, but I'm always like, no, I kind of want to do my, my thing. Well, you know, from your experience, you know, making a film, like it's years of your life. It is. And the older you get, the less of those you have. By the time Shelby's out, I will have been working on this movie for four years. Four years with that, right? Like there's a, there's a movie that's on Netflix called Zone 414 that I wrote and the director, you know, like I kind of took it a different way, but I really appreciate the fact that they, that, you know, Andrew Baird, who's a friend of mine, wanted to do it his own way. And yeah, I would have done it differently, but I also just didn't want to spend two years trying to do that. I'd written it and I kind of had gotten out of me what I needed to get out of me in the writing. And Andrew was a friend of mine. He was looking for a movie to direct and he was interested in science fiction. Like I have this weird movie about sex robots that is Kubrickian and challenging and made for 15 people. If you want to go ahead and do it. And he did it and he contemporized it and, you know, and made some different choices and all that. But I don't want to do this for two years. I want to write other things or or, or do other stuff. And so I would not be surprised if I would make a movie and let's just say knock on wood that I make a film and some people think it's good. I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't see another film from me for seven years or something. Like, I might be Terrence Malick. <laughs> yeah, some Jonathan Glazer, you know, like he comes out, he directs Birth, and he, then like 10 years later, he does Under the Skin, and still nothing since, and that was 10 years ago. Right. Like, I might just be that dude, you know? Like, I might just be like, oh, yeah, I may be on the Black Rainbow, and I'm not making anything for a while, and where's <laughs> Mandy? You know, I'm in that, and then I'm, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, it's, it's weird. So I know that if I ever see a film directed by Brian Edward Hill, that you really cared about that movie. You were like, this is something I'm going to put everything into. Yeah, because you have to. I mean, you know, from your own experience, yeah, like, it's all encompassing, and no one's going to care about that film more than you are. Like, the gaffer isn't going to care more about your film than you do. So you care the most, even the actors who might really like your movie and like you, they aren't going to care more about that film than you. They're going to go out and get something to eat and go drink and have fun. And you're going to be thinking about what you didn't get that day and what you have to get tomorrow and what mistakes you made. We were talking about Cameron, so we'll stay on topic with him. He was talking about the making of Titanic and how Leonardo DiCaprio did not want to audition. He was like, no, no, I, I don't, I don't audition. And James Cameron was like, no. And he said, he was like, the, the reason, and I'll paraphrase, obviously, I don't remember the exact quote, but uh, it was in the the GQ, James Cameron breaks down his most uh, iconic films video, if you want to watch the full thing. But he said, I'm going to be working on this movie with you, and we're going to do it together, and then we're going to stop production, and you're going to go off and do whatever you want, and then I'm going to still work on this movie. I'm going to work on this movie for a couple of years of post-production, and it's going to be like my whole life when you are way, way gone. You are going to audition. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, th- th- that's just the fact of how this stuff works. Like, and look, every director isn't like that. I have friends that, you know, are kind of workaday directors and they direct well. I'm not that dude. I'm like Michael Mann. I'm a mm-hmm. crazy person. I'm like, well, you know, we had to get Ansel Langhorn to understand journalism. So I took him down to Chicago and we talked to Kevin <laughs> about it. I'm crazy. <laughs> I am a crazy person. 
you know? And I know I'm a crazy person. No, I, I don't think that that's crazy. I, I just think that that means you really care and you want to, you want to make the best product you can. There's a reason, I mean, I'm looking at a collateral poster right now on my wall. It's not a reprint. It's original theatrical 27 by 40. And that's because of the fact that he is, as you, as you might say, crazy. I watched the, just like you did, I watched the behind the scenes of that movie constantly. And I saw how he took Tom Cruise and he was like, you got to go deliver FedEx packages and nobody can know who you are. Right. Until you can deliver FedEx packages without anybody recognizes you as Tom Cruise, we can't do this fucking movie. That is kind of nuts. Like you got Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx ready to go, but let's go deliver some FedEx packages first. <laughs> well, you know, Chris, like I think a lot of people they they get a glimpse of the business from one of the angles, and they're like that that means a lot to me, right? And so I was never interested in a red carpet. I was never interested in parties and hobnobbing. It just never really appealed to me. You know, I, Same. I was a poor kid who was a scholarship kid that went to a high school where everyone was rich and beautiful. So like I did that already in a way. There's a reason I still live in Ohio. I just, I can't do it, man. Yeah, like that doesn't matter to me. And I don't feel any envy about that. There's no part of me that is envious of the glitz and the glamour and the parties and the rest of it. I'll tell you what I do envy. When I see Tom Cruise talk about how much he respects Michael Mann, I'm like, I want to be the dude Tom Cruise talks about how much he respects. I want to be the director that actors will crawl over glass for because they know and they call me at two o'clock in the morning, I am working. I want to be the guy they're like, Brian doesn't sleep. He was here working on this, doing that, like on set, rewrite, talking to this. He did the research. Like that's the kind of thing that like really spoke to me, being that kind of person that elicits that sort of dedication out of the people that they collaborate with. I can tell that's who you are. I mean, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, it's not, common for a television writer to be on set all the time, right? Well, credit to Greg Walker, the showrunner. I, I think he recognized the crazy person inside of me and was like, okay, well, Brian will spend three hours looking at different shades of blue. So we're <laughs> going to let him be that. <laughs> you know, we'll check in with Brian later, right? Like, you know, Brian will write and rewrite and write and rewrite and do that and work it and, you know, the rest of it. And that's why I love Greg as a person. He's become a very, very good friend of mine. Greg Walker's just a great guy, brilliant storyteller, just a brilliant leader. I did want to talk to the VFX guys about things down to the frame. And I want to talk about the specularity of surfaces and making sure that we're doing this and doing that. They in television, you got to move fast, right? So you don't have the ability to shut it down. You got to do more than three pages a day. They ain't going to work. You're doing like, 10, 12 pages a day because you, you got to make an hour long piece of content in about 10 shooting days, basically, right? So you, you don't have a lot of time to kind of Kubrick it or Fincher it. Rooney can't walk down the stairs 25 times. Of course. In television. You yeah. get two. And you only get the second one because maybe she tripped a little on the first one, right? And then you got to move on. So you're kind of always conceding the entire time to change the game of constant concession. So like director me is a crazy person. Writer me is so much more chill. You know, I enjoy writing. I will redraft, do the meetings, take the notes. I have very little ego in it and the rest of it. So when you ask me like direct, like, yes, but only with the thing that I, I, I know I feel good being a crazy person about. I don't have autopilot, bro. I have, yeah. you know, Zero and Ridley Scott. Like, hundred <laughs> percent exactly what you mean, because, um, when I approached making my film, I wanted to be a person who basically could answer any question that someone gave me. 
if it was a crew member, if it was a cast, if it was a producer, if somebody said, hey, how do you feel about this lens? I wanted to know how to answer that question. And I can say after shooting the movie that I was able to answer most all of them. There was the occasional, you know what? I don't know. I don't Let know. me get back right. to it. And you know, it's actually really good to say that sometimes because if, you stand, if you stand there and half-ass it, they're going to know. Plus also, that doesn't accomplish anything. If you actually look at someone and say, you know what, I actually, I don't know. What do you think? What do you, what do you, and, and kind of have a discourse about it. But I can tell that whatever movie you eventually direct is going to be really fucking good and well-researched and just intense and awesome, especially from the people who've given you inspiration over the years. Michael Mann is one of my heroes. This has been like so, so inspiring to hear you talk about this man, everything you've gone through from being raised without a lot of resources and your mom helping you get into this school and, and supporting you and just being there, but also just the intense passion you have for writing. I mentioned it earlier, but you really have just, you've done a lot, man. You're kind of prolific already. And I kind of feel like you're just getting started, to be honest. Well, you know, it's kind of learning by necessity, but let me, let me toss that back to you because there were many, many times a few years ago when I was having just, I was struggling creatively to find the solution or find the joy or find the rest of it. And your YouTube channel was always a North Star for me. Oh, wow. Because you're so relatable. You genuinely love films. People will tell you, I would just, I would just pop on Stuckman. You were like a verb. You know, it was like, <laughs> Brian, Brian needs to Stuckman. <laughs> and I would, and it didn't even matter. It didn't even matter what you were. Wow. You know, it was just that, like, just being in, like, the pure, like, energy of somebody who loves movies so much, who's just sitting there talking to you about it in a frank and honest way, it got me out of so many creative funks, you know, and that, that's so, there's, like, there's, like, there's a couple folks, it's you, there's a Cecil Trattenberg, you know, there's a couple people out there. Yeah, good, good, bad movies, that's him, right? Good, bad movies, man, yeah. like, good, bad movies got me through a lot of stuff, like, like, it's, it's, this one, what you're doing is important, and and I've introduced your your YouTube to a lot of young people who want to be filmmakers. And I'm like, watch this guy because he talks about film in a smart and relatable way, and you and you and you'll feel you'll feel the love in there. And you do it, you know, and and they get that same thing. So that's one of the really nicest things I've ever heard. Thank you. Man. It was real. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 just one of those things, dude. So so I genuinely appreciate the work that you've been doing. And I know I'm not the only creative that's like that. I I think that's why you're able to get like really, you know, interesting people. Not that I'm interesting. You kind of messed up this week, but like <laughs> we can't all bat a thousand. So but what is no, you're great. This has been a great episode. I'm excited to release it. Yeah. That's why, because a lot of people are, are, you know, it's, it's, it, your means a lot. I know it, you know, it, and it must be hard to do with, you know, YouTube and the schedule and the rest of it, man. I know, I know it's hard to do, but it's really nice to just have it out there. Thank you, you so much. Fred and Chris. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, like it, it has been an interesting year with making a film, being a dad and, and also continuing the YouTube, even when I can hopefully fully transition over to filmmaking full time, I'm still going to be making videos. You know, it's, it's yeah. probably, it's, it's, it's something that's been inside of me now. It's like, you're like, you're like David Sandberg, you know, like, you, sure. you're like real, like you're making these, you're making cool movies, but you're still like, Hey, you know, I'm still like a dude who loves movies. Yeah. And I'm just going to talk to you about the stuff. I can't imagine not doing a Halloween special every year. Like I'm, I'm probably <laughs> yeah. still going to continue to do those. Like just talk about random horror films I love, but look, man, seriously, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for dropping so much genuinely helpful knowledge. I mean, I, I really do think that people should listen really closely to the way 
you talked about writing and filmmaking because you're someone who got your hands on anything you could when you were a kid, whether it was from the library or a video store or a magazine from a garage sale. And you taught yourself everything you possibly could at that time about film to the point where you had, it was in your blood. And that's something that I've noticed from every guest so far is that no one really ever stopped investing themselves in film and writing. No one ever kind of just rested and thought, well, maybe I'll try something. It was like, no, this is it. This is what I'm going to study. This is what I love. I want to figure out everything about this. And honestly, I really did mean what I say. I really do feel like you're just beginning. I feel like six, seven years from now, people will go back to this this episode and be like, wow, look at all this uh, random shit they were talking about. Brian's already done X, Y, Z since then. You know, like I just watched this uh, video about Pedro Pascal. It was like uh, Pedro Pascal talks about his most iconic film roles. And it was like this old ass video, <laughs> like yeah. before before Mandalorian, before uh, well, Last of Us. In, in like seven years, we can be like Chris Nolan and Michael Mann. <laughs> where we just like sit on the stage and like some you know radio city music hall or whatever and yeah. we just have like a mutual love fest of each other's work and get into the granular aspects of whatever our films are that's the dream chris that's gonna be great guys thank you so much for listening and thank you brian for coming on this episode man thank you for having me it's been a real pleasure